Hello. It is Ergo. I'm Kiss. I am Damon, and we are here on the line. Um, during this time of isolation and pandemic, we've put together this series of folks who are on the ground, on the front lines, different folks in movement work and organizers and, you know, folks sharing their, their firsthand of experience of, you know, what's really going on in the world. Uh, and so we're fortunate to have two people who I love, value and admire deeply, uh, who we need to have on a traditional, just like regular degular, the world's not on fire episode. Uh, <laughs> we have amazing organizers, Alice Kim and Timmy Chow. They are of many spaces, uh, but they work together, certainly with PNAP, uh, the Prison Neighborhood Arts Project. Make some noise. <laughs> so there's not much normalcy, uh, but the one thing that we are trying to keep consistent is our opening question, which is a two-part question that both of you can answer. Um, in this time and define time, however you may, uh, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Hmm. Which is three quarters of a valid answer, by the way. A deep <laughs> sigh goes far these yeah. days. I guess I am feeling a lot of gratitude these days, right? Because, you know, I'm here in my little corner of the world here in Portage Park and um, I'm sheltering in place with my partner, Brian, and also my sister is here with us. We're grateful to be healthy, to be safe, right? And in that sense, I feel like, okay, I'm I'm feeling okay. At the same time, um, you know, anxiety levels are high. I worry about all the people who are out there. You know, Timmy and I teach at Stateville Prison and you know, the conditions inside, it's really hard to think about um, what our students and all those who are locked up at Stateville, um, what they're facing right now. So that's what I think is the hardest um, for me to be able to keep up. And I think, Damon, you mentioned, you know, just the the guilt and the anxiety of the everyday today, right? That's something that I feel like is ever present right now. Hmm. How about you, Timmy? Similarly to Alice, I mean, I'm posted up in Rogers Park. My New Year's resolution was to slow down. And then during my birthday in February, I recommitted to that intention to slow down. And seemingly, I've transitioned out of different, I've tied off certain commitments, I've done certain things, and I have so many reasons to actually slow down. And but, you know, with everything that's happening, it's it's really hard to, that sense of time is really changing in some ways. And then in other ways, the, the time there's not enough time um, for a lot of us, kind of, especially, you know, as Alice mentioned, the folks that we do work with and, and close, just close friends and family that are locked up. And yeah, I've just been at times overwhelmed, most of the time overwhelmed just totally like shook. Um, yeah. yeah. Let's stay there. I appreciate that. First of all, and, and I respect that. And, and it's almost like <laughs> it's uncomfortable uh, even having this conversation of like asking time of the both of you uh, because I'm one of those folks who, you know, 
never feels like I, I'm doing enough, but I'm always feeling like I'm in a whirlwind or, or behind. Um, and you both are people that I look at as like, that is a level of commitment and investment and, and responsibility and responsiveness that I aspire towards, or at least know is, if not the ideal, you know, a, a benchmark. Right. Um, and so I, I want to talk a little bit more about this notion of time and pace uh, outside of the immediate, right? Like we know that there are people who behind bars who shouldn't, that should never be the case. Uh, but particularly right now, it is even more devastating and more dehumanizing and more dangerous. Uh, that was some accidental alliteration for the for the folks at home. Look, it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sometimes things <laughs> fall into place, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but talking about this notion of, of time and pace, I, you know, I've been on a couple of Zoom calls with you, Alice, and it feels like you're doing three times as many as I am, and I feel like I'm doing a lot, uh, Timmy. You know, you're a fucking lawyer, and like you know, you're running around starting organizations and ending organizations. You know, <laughs> I'm amazed by the both of you. Right? Uh, um, has this earth altering whirlwind of a pandemic um, shifted maybe your perspective either personally about like the time and pace of, you know, the work or life or, you know, what your body goes through or what your mind goes through for yourself or like I've been doing, I've been reflecting. I think human beings are just overworked and moving too much and we have uh, completely skewed perceptions of what we should be doing and how much we should be moving. Um, so for both of you who I admire so much and are really hard movement workers, how are you thinking about pace? Yeah, just I'll kick it off just with a thought that comes to mind, but we can, you know, curious what you think about this, Alice. But I go back and forth because I feel like I'm hearing a lot from a lot of like trusted friends and folks doing similarly deeply entrenched in kind of movement work and some really in, in this really hard moment, who talk about how the slowdown and how many of us need to take this moment actually as a, as a lesson to actually sh- just stop and take a break and slow down. But it, it's, it's hard to reconcile that when trying to be in solidarity with folks who time was up a long time ago, right? And so the urgency is there and it's never disappeared for so many in, in other ways. And so it's hard, hard for me to kind of feel like it's okay to just stop and slow down. But I, at the same time, I know that, you know, it isn't sustainable in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction, but I think that what comes to mind for me is, you know, in this moment, I've really been struggling with, um, you know, feelings of powerlessness, and that that's been really hard to grapple with and contend with and think about what's happening in our world and what's happening in our prisons in particular and just, you know, all the organizing um, that folks are doing. And I am so heartened by what I've seen emerge in a matter of hours and days, you know, especially at the beginning when we were all realizing, I guess, coming to terms with what this um, means for us, you know, just to see people spring into action has been um, a a beautiful thing. Um, But I think that what's hard is feelings of 
powerlessness and often feeling like, okay, one step forward, two steps back, right? That um, people, for example, really did a lot to raise money to get soap and sanitizer inside the prisons, right? And then at this, you know, today, I think we learned of the seventh death at Stateville. On the one hand, I I feel similar to, to Timmy, feeling like, there may need to be um, a way to, to to slow down and and to pause. And on the other hand, I think it also has been fortifying. It's been fortifying to be part of this work, right? So that in this moment to feel like we are doing something and to build community with one another, even as we're all sort of isolated in our homes, right? There was a Good Friday caravan. Uh, last week at Stateville and, you know, just being in proximity to other people mm. that I had just been on Zoom calls with. In some ways, it's funny, too, because I feel like I've seen Timmy now more than I have, you know, <laughs> ever before, right? <laughs> Almost daily, yeah. we're seeing each other on Zoom calls, right? But only from the shoulders up. <laughs> right. But then actually, you're driving by and being able to honk and wave and take a photo and all of that. It was meaningful. That meant something in this moment. So let, let's get to the to the work that's happening right now. Maybe just to kind of set the context, what's the situation in Stateville right now? Um, and how did we get to this point? Well, the situation, as Alice mentioned, you know, we just received word that a seventh person has passed and the conditions are are bleak. We hear about conditions that are just getting worse and worse and... Um, resources and access to resources, cleaning supplies, medical care is is not happening. Um, and groups of seven to eight men being held in a bullpen at once during these messed up movement schedules and, um, you know, just the, impos- and the impossibility of social distancing and, and the impossibility of all the things that even on the outside, we as folks in the free world are struggling to make like these guidelines that are impossible inside. And, and then also hearing about how local politicians and administrators aren't taking action in the ways that um, that can, could, could, could have a meaningfully meaningfully mitigate some of these conditions and this and the situation. You know, there there's been demands. You know, all the types of demands are from ranging from the folks doing work around the jail, right, to free folks from the jail. There's been these large pushes to, you know, release elderly folks and immunocompromised folks. There's been, um, but even with a lot of these demands, though, that's a very small segment of the of people that a lot many of these demands are, are, are referring to and something that's been crucial to the work that we're trying to support and uplift right now is, is the stories and, and challenges of folks that are mass released now isn't a viable demand for, for these folks to be making. And how are we supporting and how are we mobilizing around folks dealing with, you know, very long-term sentences, like lifelong sentences, right? And that, that's a lot of, the, a big portion of the folks that we work with at Stateville um, those are the kind of situations that we're up against. And so it kind of has shifted the advocacy that we've been supporting. We need to be also pushing for earned discretionary release and creating some sort of mechanism for folks to be eligible f- for release, um, which you know doesn't exist right now in the state of Illinois for many folks, uh, life without parole. Um, 
let's stay right there. Um, and because uh, I think for people who don't do work around uh, decarceration, the the idea of parole is something that's kind of in people's popular imagination about the mechanisms of incarceration. And I think a lot of people don't know that that's not even you know potentially on the books in the state of Illinois. What is the current policy uh, around that, and why isn't there the option of parole either in this moment of crisis or just in general? You know, Timmy and I co-facilitate a think tank at Stateville, and we're looking and exploring, researching, examining long-term sentencing policy. And one of the things about Illinois um, that most people, in fact, do not know is that our state uh, essentially does not have a parole system. It's convoluted. It's a little bit um, confusing because there are a group of people who are incarcerated called C-number prisoners. Uh, Timmy actually worked on um, the uh, parole board uh review um, of, of one person who was a C-number prisoner who was actually released um, last summer. The thing that's confusing is that for those who were incarcerated prior to 1978, when Illinois effectively abolished the parole system, they still are eligible for parole. The other thing is that when people are on mandatory supervised release, that's when you get out of prison, but you still have to report to an officer, right? And oftentimes you're, you, you have a shackle, an ankle shackle um, uh, that monitors where you are at all times, um, that people refer to that as being on parole, right? So, oh, I'm on parole, right? People, you'll often hear people say that, but in fact, they're not on parole. They're on mandatory supervised release. And then the last thing that's a little bit confusing is that just last year in April, Governor Pritzker did sign legislation bringing back a juvenile parole system, right? But that juvenile parole system, no one is eligible for um, parole um, for at least 10 years from the date that that legislation was signed, right? So effectively, Illinois does not have a parole system. Right now, um, Parole Illinois has been working with um, two senators to introduce earned discretionary released, right? And so earned discretionary release legislation would allow people uh, to show that they have earned, <laughs> um, you know, by taking classes, by doing um, other things um, through their work records and so on and so forth, that they should be able to file um to come before a parole board. And so that's what that legislation is doing. And so that has actually been introduced. Of course, now with the COVID crisis, um, everything kind of has been halted, right? But what we know is that it's actually important to ensure that this moment um, actually helps push us forward and not take us back. We think it's really important to continue to talk about, you know, the crisis of long-term incarceration and to not, in all of our efforts to actually respond to COVID-19, to come together and address relief efforts and so on and so forth, that we're also continuing to really push on the things that led to this crisis in the first place behind bars, right? We have to ask, why do we have so many elderly people, so many vulnerable people behind bars in the first place? And and to um, insist on the kinds of changes and reforms that can actually help address that problem. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's super personal for me. I, I had a, um, 
not had I my uncle uh was incarcerated from 1981 to 2001. He spent most of the time if not all of it at Pontiac. I get maybe hearing when you said it 78, I guess I maybe it wasn't formal parole program, but that's the language that we use in the family and he got, you know, air quote parole to my home uh for the first 2 years. This was 2001, so he wouldn't have been set to be released without parole or whatever happened until 2021. Uh, so now I have three teenage cousins that would not exist. Right. Like, you know, uh, uh, um, and so that's not even like a question. It's just like hearing this is just like really shocking. And like, you know, personally within my family, within my like household growing up, um, is significant. So I guess then my question would be how, how in this time can we push consciousness? Uh, because I guess my fear is, there's something that makes sense for just like the regular passive, maybe liberal thinking person around the jail of folks who are, are not convicted and how this is, you know, a crime against humanity um, to, to be storing people basically for being poor um, in death making conditions. Uh, but we hear from like, you know, the mayor and other folks, this kind of like counter argument of to keep everybody else safe. Let's keep the dangerous people isolated in this space and a, more or less allow them to die. And so I can imagine that type of like liberal or, or even conservative, you know, anti-human uh, perspective is easier to sit in for people uh, for the for the prison system. And so how do we push people from y'all's position to challenge this idea of these inherently dangerous people who are a threat to us all? And this is this is the best option right now in this time where like we are all biologically at risk. Um, you know, I started working, doing this kind of work by organizing against capital punishment, organizing against the death penalty. And that's when I first met people who were incarcerated. Um, and not only that, they actually had a death sentence hanging over them. And I learned really early on to listen to those who are actually the most directly affected and impacted, to listen to those who um, were facing um, a death sentence. So I learned so much from a group of men called the Death Row 10. The Death Row 10 was actually started by a man named Stanley Howard. This was right in the um, aftermath of the crime bill. Part of the crime bill was that it ended Pell Grants, uh, for people who were incarcerated. So people no longer had access to education inside, right? It's really been since the end of Pell Grants that education programs like the Prison Neighborhood Arts Project and other programs have slowly been built back up. And it's only really in recent years that we've seen kind of the explosion of prison education programs. But at that time, um, he was earning a paralegal degree um, inside, and now suddenly education classes were all halted, right? So what he decided to do was organize law classes. Um, so he got permission from the warden um, at Pontiac to organize two different law classes so they could teach each other how to file their own appeals, right? And it was during the course of these classes that they realized that a group of them had all been tortured by the same group of officers, by uh, former commander John Burge and the other white detectives under his command. And they were going nowhere with their appeals. All their appeals were getting denied. And that's why they decided to organize themselves and they called themselves the Death Row 10. You know, just being able to learn from and hear the stories of 
people who are on death row. It was transformative for me, but that's really where I learned about what, what's really happening in, in our prisons, what's really happening on death rows across the country. And I think the same actually holds true now, that we need to listen to those who are facing life sentences, those who are incarcerated, and we need to listen um, to their family members, right? Um, Parole Illinois held a incredibly powerful press conference uh, just last week that featured you know, the voices of you know a number of family members, people who have loved ones incarcerated at Stateville, at Menard, at other places, and also people who are formerly incarcerated. And I think those are the voices that we need to listen to, and their experiences are the ones that should inform any policies, any changes that um, we are working for um, today. So with that understanding and with that ethos, what are you hearing right now, uh, either from conversations that you're able to have with people who are inside or from family members? Obviously, we're asking you to kind of be the middle person right now and <laughs> counter to what you just said. Um, but uh, what should we all be hearing from the people who, as always, centering the people who are most affected? What are you What are you hearing from them right now? In addition to the situation is really dire. You know, Pearl, Illinois um, introduced... Um, uh, demands that were uh, coming from inside. Uh, these demands were immediate demands and then also long-term demands. And the immediate things were actually things like, you know, being able to go outside and have yard, right? Um, at some uh, prisons, uh, that are on lockdown, that means that people are basically 24-7 in their cells, right? That's that's torture. One of the things that they demanded was being able to have yard time, you know, to be able to, you know, to have um, the officers figure out ways that they can socially distance, remain six feet apart from one another and get outside, right? And I can only imagine, right? Um, I know we were just uh, talking about uh, being recluses and staying inside our, our places, <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, can you imagine if we could not go out at all, right? And you're stuck in a in a prison cell. There have been, you know, a number of different um articles um, that have come out where people have either argued that we should not be comparing um, our situation to um, solitary confinement or incarceration. There are also other uh, pieces, essays that have come out that make a compelling case. This is just you know a small glimpse, a tiny, tiny little taste of what it could be like for people who are inside. But whatever you might think, you know, people need to be able to keep themselves safe. People need to be able to go outside. So they're asking, you know, they want soap. They want to be able to clean things. Things that we wouldn't. Even think about right when they make their phone calls, right? That can they clean off um, the receiver so that they can be safe as the phone is passed from one person to the next. Um, so those are some of the immediate things that people are talking about inside. And then the longer term things are the things that I think Timmy and I have have raised. Um, that there needs to be, um, you know, legislation that allows for earned discretionary release. Um, there needs to be corrective clemency, for example, where the governor can correct, um, you know, all of the harsh sentencing measures that have were passed in the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, things like mandatory minimums, um, things like truth in sentencing, right, that essentially doubled the amount of time that people have to serve, that the governor has the power through corrective clemency 
that he could basically commute everyone's sentences to pre-truth and sentencing days, for example. And that would mean that um, people would be able to get out and not be facing uh, death by incarceration. Hmm. Uh, that, thank you for that last piece. That, that's something that I'm learning the most right now is a lot of processes of power and decision-making that were convoluted or kind of covered up or like coming to light. Like we are seeing who has the ability to make a choice to save someone's life or not. Right. And, and I think before with all the moving pieces or all of the, um, you know, air quote politics uh, or the unethical politics that get in the way of, of, of true real politics, um, can be just this obstacle to us saying that, hey, governor, you could do this right now. Hey, state's attorney, you could do this right now. Hey, sheriff, you can do this right now. Um, and so that's really valuable. Um, and to those like two thought piece positions you were talking about of uh, one, this can be a glimpse to like the privilege we have and the real dehumanizing conditions, uh, but also like check yourself and like this is nothing compared to actual you know, carceral torture that thousands and millions of people are experiencing right now. Uh, for both of you personally that are able to function within, you know, these carceral spaces, but also, you know, enjoy the freedom uh, and the privilege of being able to move throughout the world. Uh, what is annoying you or what is encouraging you about how people are using this shock to kind of like readdress their own position to what's happening in carceral systems. Basically we're saying respond to a think piece with a short spoken think piece. <laughs> I guess that is what I'm saying. Damn. That's not as cool a question. Anymore. No, no, no. It's a damn good question, but we just, we have a plethora of think pieces always available at our disposal. <laughs> okay. But, but like, are you hearing people on Twitter? Are you getting annoyed or encouraged by people's like awareness right now? I think that we are seeing both things, right? You know, we're seeing a growing awareness, right, about the conditions um, that people who are incarcerated are facing. Um, you know, if we can come out of this thing stronger, right, then that will be a silver lining to all of this, right? Um, but we're also seeing that people are digging in too, right? And I think that that's often what happens in these kinds of situations, pandemic type situations, disasters, is that you see an, you know, growing polarization as well. I don't think that there have been nearly enough releases from the jails or the prisons, right? Um, but you see that the FOP recently put out a statement really being critical of any releases um, thus far and basically essentially saying that these releases are a danger to our community. So I think that you know, you're actually seeing both people kind of digging in their heels in terms of reactionary response to what's actually happening and what the solutions um, ought to be and need to be. Um, and then at the same time, uh, growing awareness, a heightened awareness. And I think that that really is a testament. Like here in Chicago, I think there have been a number of organizations who have been doing the work for years. So in this moment, we have been able to and we were able to quickly respond. Um, and now the question is, are we going to be able to deepen the work by actually strengthening the kind of coalition building that's happening right now? All of these calls that we're on, we all see each other much more frequently. So how can we use that not just to address the emergency situation, but 
the uh, incredibly deep and systemic practices of long-term sentencing and the prison industrial complex that have existed for a really long time. Timmy, before I ask another question, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah. And for me, what it makes me think about is um, what can this work actually look like? What is contesting with that violence and the harms of like the prison industrial complex? Yes, there's a lot of conversations in the mainstream and on Twitter about, you know, um, challenging these systems. But what, what are those models and what does the work look like? And I think, you know, now is a moment to like really share those out and plug people in because, you know, there are people out, out there experimenting and doing that work and building power. So, so to that point and seeing some models playing out in real time, um, one of the things that's important and interesting in, in that kind of like implementation is that you're seeing, you know, all the different societal structures of the world responding to a similar threat and seeing the difference in their responses. And what that means in terms of incarceration has meant a lot of different things, uh, you know, whether that's in Iran being quick to, you know, decarcerate at a higher rate than here. And just seeing, seeing these things play out, are there any examples from other countries uh, that y'all have seen of either organizing work or outcomes from, a, from policy that have one just been surprising or stood out to you or also seem like models that can inform the way the work plays out here? Or have you all just been nose to the grindstone, like trying to get people like I, I understand the like zoom out isn't always uh, what people are doing. I mean, given that we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, I think that we can learn a lot from so many other countries who practice different practices when it comes to uh, incarceration and caging um, their um, their people, right? Um, I think that there was recently, last year, there was a piece in the New York Times that was uh, featuring um, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's work. And in that, she talked about Germany and how people uh, who are facing convictions for murder, that uh, their sentences are less than 20 years, right? And here in the United States, um, people who actually even haven't convicted murder are facing life sentences. Um, and so I think that, yeah, we can look around the world and say that, why are we the ones when we're claiming to be um, a democracy? Why are we the ones who are actually locking up um, people uh, for life? So I think in that sense, the question, it can be useful to look around the world. Yeah, so that question about examples, I mean, there's this really great um, resource that um, Surge... Showing up for racial justice. Yeah, showing up for racial justice. They put put together this amazing decarceration and COVID resource packet, and they list out so far decarceration wins, policy shifts on a state level, they have state by state, and then even internationally, um, you know, Iran temporarily frees some 85,000 folks, um, prisoners in Yemen to be released by the Houthi government, Germany releases some 1,000, Indonesia agrees for early release for 30,000 incarcerated folks. So there are all these international examples, but at the same time, as Alice, I think, rightly points out, the U.S. stands out as a prison nation, right? And we are actively exporting the logics and tactics of the contemporary prison apparatus in the U.S. around the world. And on top of that, you know, it makes me think of, you know, the PIC in the U.S. comes out of a particular historical, you know, context, right? And 
year after year being refined and shaped. And so like when we talk about the ridiculous long-term sentences that we're, we're facing with here and, you know, there's some things that we can learn, but also have to keep in mind the, the particular types of challenges that we're facing here in the U.S., and then it also makes me think about how, you know, I, I keep bringing her up, but I'm such a fan, but Ruthie Wilson, <laughs> Ruth Wilson, she made this, this really poignant comment that, you know, incarceration is class warfare. And I think if more folks doing work, you know, across labor, across climate and racial justice and racial economic justice work, if we understood the prison and the prison industrial complex as part and parcel to that oppression that I think it would help facilitate, I think, the breaking down the silos if we understood how, you know, interwoven and connected these these so-called silos that we're chipping away at in different places are actually, you know, deeply under intertwined and operating together on their end. Why aren't we also doing that on our end, if that makes sense? I have a question for you two. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm wondering in this COVID moment and the work that is happening around prisons right now, like how has that changed, um, you know, your understanding of prisons or this work? I'd love to kind of get a sense from both of you what you're thinking. I love a flip it back on us. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go first, Kiss? No, nah, you got it. Ah, okay. No, thank you for that question. Because uh, I've been trying to like tease that out. Um, and it's hard, right? Because like all of us, we think so actively <laughs> about these systems that it's unfortunately not a shock. It's, it's, it's sobering or it's heartbreaking, but you know, we use the language that prepares us for this moment already. So trying to think of like, what is the next jump we need to take? Uh, something I've been thinking about is there are always health crises going on in prisons, right? And there are always viral infections. Um, and that, that you know, I've heard this for years. I've heard this from family. I've heard this from community. But uh, specifically, once the the move folks were coming home, uh, that's something they talked about the most of like how seemingly so and almost it would feel politically pointed uh, the, the way folks were dying from air quote natural causes in ways that were completely preventable and mysterious and rapid and would not have happened in any other space. Um, and so you know, just thinking about the facts that, that folks who are more likely to be predisposed to health crisis are placed in spaces that perpetuate that regardless of a, a global pandemic. I've been thinking just about how, you know, I try to use an expansive notion of, of carceral. Uh, and so thinking about how in this time, uh, the other less militarized carceral spaces, uh, whether it's, you know, elder care, um, I think what, what we've seen around um, immigration and, and, and particularly like the, the action on the heartland space uh, that, that um, you know, Daniel did a good job of pointing my attention to is really prevalent of how the framework of incarceration has gone beyond the prison and jail and it is prepared to respond everywhere. Right. So where we are all supposed to be still seeing the ways that the police are called upon or seeing the ways that, you know, hospitals or, or other spaces are prepared to be in lockdown mode. Um, and it's acceptable right now because we all need to be in some sort of lockdown. I think that's my my deepest thought outside of how immediate it is to get people out of the, the situation. Right. Like 10 years ago, I don't think we would have been prepared to have folks conscious about all of society. Right. Like, I, I, you know, I think there was a time uh, where if this pandemic were to come, it would have been much more easy to be silent or 
keep carceral systems invisible. Um, so there is a weird sense of opportunity or, or, or it just being more legible, I guess is, yeah, that's my, that's my concise answer. The pandemic makes the violence of incarceration more legible. So the thing that really concerns me is logics of incarceration being applied in response to, you know, we know that when the police call themselves public safety, that's not true, right? So when we talk about public health being used the same way, that's what makes me the most nervous is surveillance, imposition on people's bodies, where they can move, where they can't move, becoming legitimized because of crisis. And, you know, good luck getting that toothpaste back in the tube, right? Like we know that once something's acceptable, it takes, like you said, decades to make it unacceptable Mm. again. Like you said, like there not being ways for people to have access to education took decades for that to then be, you know, reasserted to the point that it was accessible again. So that's my very uh, pessimistic concern is seeing the like acceptability of these logics because people who haven't had to contend with them have to contend with them now and come to their own terms about whether they're okay with it or not. And I'm worried that a lot of people will say, you know what? Okay. Yeah. And that, that helps me get, I just want to add one little addendum because that helps me think of to, to finally answer the question <laughs> in the same way I said, like decision makers have to reveal themselves, like power is revealing itself, like philosophy and consciousness is revealing itself too. Right. So we always used to say incarcerating someone is a death sentence or this is death making, or this is an anti-life or this is a violent system, but now mayors, governors, sheriffs, county board members are having to explicitly name who they think is expendable, that some people can be sacrificed, some people deserve to die. And they never would have been forced to say that. It would have just been, you know, this is what we do. Uh, But now, right now, it's like, hey, if we keep doing this, we know statistically estimated how many people, how many lives will be lost. What decision are you going to make? And, you know, the answer is death. Uh, and so now that is something that we can hold up that used to be like our assumption or our analysis or our conclusion. Uh, but now it's like two plus two equals four. Uh, and so that, that is again, heartbreaking, but also an opportunity, uh, for, for learning. Mm-hmm. We're in a moment of crisis, right? Activists are some part of our role is to, is to create crisis to like take advantage of that. But capitalism, all of these different systems are are also actively taking advantage of the crisis. Like you said, lines are being drawn in the sand harder than ever. And immediately, right, like even at the border, you know how much work of opening up borders and, and migrant justice, how so much of that was undone in a matter of days because of the pandemic and how, you know, and now surveillance testing, medical biological surveillance testing at at all the borders, that level of militarism that just was able to be normalized within overnight, essentially. And now that we're going to have to work our way back. um, Yeah, it's, it's extremely challenging. And again, makes me think about like, this is a moment where we need, do need to be hustling in so many different ways because these logics are, are, are reconstituting themselves and digging deep. Um, and so we have to be contesting those lines in the sand. And um, so I, I have, I, I want to be very aware also of time and energy. So, um, you know, y'all are both, you know, really dynamic, important people. And, and once we can, we also want to do like a more extended, get the backstory, you know, more traditional ergo conversation. So please be on the lookout for that when, when possible. But my last 
curiosity or question, um, you know, speaks to this notion of militarization. You guys were speaking earlier about connecting the silos. Um, and so one big jump from my thinking that was really important once I started naming police and prisons explicitly as domestic militarization, right? And so I wanted to, you know, just give a little bit of time to speak towards militarization globally. Um, and I think a part, the main reason why the United States incarcerates its population more than any other country is because they are playing the role or we are playing the role of global police officer. And therefore we have to subordinate our own population in order to maintain and sustain that. Right. Um, and so Alice, I would love your perspective as well. If you have any, but no pressure Timmy. if, if you don't have a, a direct answer, to this is also okay. Uh, but we've talked a lot about the dissenters on the show, which is a new emerging space. We had Debbie on, uh, I was out in DC and was able to speak to some students of Howard. Um, and so for the folks who don't know, you know, an anti-militarism organization that was aiming to build power on college campuses, which I know a lot of that work had to shut down or change or alter. Um, and so in this time where everybody is is focusing on like the immediate, what's happening in my house, what's happening in my block, what's happening with the prison a few miles away, what's happening with the jail in my, you know, in my county, um, I can imagine there are things happening globally. There's geopolitics at play. There is investment. I'm sure some of those trillions of dollars of stimulus money uh, was going towards defense and going towards these mythologies of national security. And similar to like the Patriot Act 20 years ago, in this time of trauma and crisis, uh, we might not be immediately aware or paying attention uh, to how this global militarization is is being expanded in our name. Uh, so I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> uh, and so if either of y'all have perspective, um, and I know, Timmy, that's definitely, you know, a focus of yours of like what is happening with like the global militaristic project uh, in relationship to this or just anything we should be aware of and be mad about right now to keep it simple. A lot of folks have been talking about the rise of the far right and austerity governments prior to COVID. And I think what we're already seeing, right, like you said, is things are shifting very rapidly, like the pandemic um, is creating a lot of unrest all over the world and will likely build unrest, you know, in the coming months and years. So I think what we'll likely see and what we're already seeing is, you know, as economies are in crisis and in capitalism crisis, that that's a moment where military governments, austerity becomes the norm when states need to be leaning on militarism to maintain control and maintain assert power. So, and I think that's increasingly becoming the norm and will only increase more so as we, as the pandemic continues to play out. We see this happening in the U S already, right? When we have, I, I guess, I guess it's uh, over 30,000 national guards have been activated across the, the United States more than ever before in, in the, in the, in the country's history. And granted, they're taking up um, what's called what what politicians are describing the war against COVID nineteen, right? And I think a lot of the National Guard have been operationalized for to serve to support medical, you know, medical needs, right? But what we do know is why were these all this funding and these increasing the, the bloated military budget? How 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 did that contribute to the situation we're now in? And now we're leaning on the same military to support to provide the role of medical health professionals and and to provide the um, health care that was severely depleted, and in part because of our our decision to be a blank check to 
um, the military. Um, and, you know, just the other day that, that Congress approved a budget increase, a military budget increase to expand U.S. military presence across Asia, right? And so I've been so caught up in, in local efforts that I haven't been able to give you the expert analysis on all the geopolitical, you know, considerations going on to that. But you can imagine U.S. military expanding its presence across Asia, across Southeast Asia, and those budgets are being raised right now while we are so, you know, lacking all the funds. State budgets are already prepping us for no money. So what this government is choosing to prioritize with its money right now shows a lot, you know, about what safety really means for politicians and and corporate elites. Yeah, I guess the only thing that I will say is that, um, you know, I know that there is a saying like in politics that, you know, you you have to take advantage of every tragedy, right? And I think that time and time again, we do see uh, governments doing that, right? And I remember um, post 911, right, that, um, you know, there was an anti-war slogan that arose um, right in the uh, immediate aftermath, which was don't turn tragedy into war. And I think that that is something that, um, we need to be thinking of today and kind of reclaiming um, that that slogan of not turning tragedy um, into war because it is scary. It is scary what um, people who are in power, how they will use this um, crisis and this moment. And um, just we can see our civil liberties like just disappearing. And that's scary. Um, I guess I also just want to, at this moment, recall that, you know, the whole law and order kind of movement uh, began in this country um, in the 1960s, and really as a direct response to the Black Power Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. And so uh, this pandemic, um, you know, it's no secret that it is racial, right? And um, that we have to include a racial um, analysis in everything um, that we're doing. We know that most people um, who are behind bars are Black and Brown, right? People who are facing who this crisis is hitting the worst are Black and Brown people, are people who are poor, um, and that we need to remember that. And the law and order rhetoric and the beginnings and the origins of that all um, was a response um, from our government, um, to people actually revolting um, and saying that we deserve better. And I think that in this moment, we do deserve better. And um, we need to be mindful of that. You know, coming off that word of revolt, you know, reading the international news section of the New York Times can paint this really like scary picture of what we can potentially anticipate and, and just news in general right now. But at the same time, People's consent to be governed is being questioned all over the world right now. Um, and that's something to really be, I think, hopeful about. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, with, with that, thank you uh, so much. Y'all are both people uh, who I, I love and appreciate and respect. And I love and appreciate and respect your work. Um, so thank you for, for sharing your times with us. And particularly like to have to talk through all of these very heavy, depressing things uh, in the midst of, you know, being in this this whirlwind so uh that labor that y'all just did again on top of all the other labor uh is seen and valued and you know i I think this conversation being documented uh will help a lot of other people process and kind of understand all that's going on right now 
one last question for both of y'all, and it's a two-parter. One, what should uh, the two of us and our listeners know? And more importantly, what should we be doing, um, whether it's around Stateville or any other pieces of the work that you're seeing? And, And two, what's something that the two of you have been doing every day or close to every day that's helping you be closer to okay in these moments? I mean, I think that one of the single most important things to do in this moment is to continue the call for um, letting people out, right? To me, um, gave the numbers of what other countries are doing in this moment, letting people out, and the U.S. comes nowhere close to that. And that is the single most um, you know, significant thing that I think that can be done. So keeping the call out for that. And I think that what that means is a whole range of things, right? We were talking about um, mutual aid work um, in the class that uh, I teach. And, um, you know, one of the important things about mutual aid work that Dean Spade um, constantly reminds us um, is that it is also about making demands upon the state and it is also about creating a set of new social relations, right? And so I think, you know, I'm thinking of how social relations are being changed in this moment as we're doing this mutual aid work, as we're trying to get soap and sanitizer inside, as, you know, who are the people who have the most up-to-date reports about what's actually happening inside? And it's people who have loved loved ones who are incarcerated and being, you know, lifting up those voices and valuing those voices and creating platforms for those voices. So all of that is going along with mutual aid work. And, and I think that the other, the creativity involved in it, that you don't have to wait for someone else um, to decide um, what it is that you can do. Um, You can be motivated and inspired by something that you read, something that you learn about. And I think this is the moment where uh, we are calling on people to use their creative energy and resources and to develop new projects and um, new efforts and new initiatives that can actually meet the needs of people who are incarcerated and also work towards um, getting people out of of prison. Part two. Um, two things. And this is, these are new practices. Well, they're old practices that I am now revisiting finally in the last week and, and this week. Um, one of the assignments for this class that Kathy Cohen and I are uh, co-teaching, we were actually supposed to be teaching a class, um, a mixed enrollment class inside Stateville. You know, that came to a halt. We weren't allowed to actually have this class. Uh, the class was canceled inside, but we're still uh, teaching an online course. And the prompt for this week was for everyone to, um, you know, create their own playlist for survival. And so that really gave me pause to kind of go through and think about, well, what are the the pieces of music, who are the performers, who are the artists, what are the songs that are meaningful to me? And that was actually the highlight of my week. (laughs) Even it was actually a grueling, somewhat grueling week for for me personally. And uh, taking the time and taking the moment to just listen uh, to music and think about what is the music that fortifies me um, was really helpful. And then also poetry has long been something that I've turned to for inspiration. Oftentimes, if I'm stuck 
you know, when my mother died, um, you know, she, I, I was with her for six weeks and she was diagnosed with cancer, um, and died, um, very quickly. Um, and, um, it was poetry that really helped me every single day to be able to read poems. I think because they're so succinct and every word has power and meaning, it forces you to slow down and reflect, um, and think. So I think, you know, uh, poetry has, has helped me. Word. To the first piece about what folks, what folks can be doing, I mean, I have not too much more to add with Alice. There's a plethora of like mutual aid projects, you know, trying to provide direct material support in this moment that folks can contribute to and get involved in. I also think that organizers and folks that are doing the work can can likely always do a little bit better about making sure the invitation is open to everybody um, and extending those opportunities as much as possible and yeah, I think it's a it's a moment where folks are coming together. So how how can we like be encouraging folks to take action and get get involved and, and lower this a lot of the kind of seeming barriers to, to involvement, especially in a moment where so much needs to happen. Um, learn about parole Illinois. Learn about indiscretionary release. Um, that's a that's a big piece, I think. And uh, in terms of part two. For me, it's been really helpful and um, necessary to find ways to exercise. I think it, it's, I have a hard time, you know, I've been reading, I recently started reading a little bit about, more about Buddhism and, and meditation practices. And and, it, and that's a work in progress, but I think running and just exercise is, allows me, I'm privileged enough to be able to like go into my body and be present with my body and my breath and slow down my thoughts and take a break from the wheels spinning. So um, brings me a little bit closer to okay, as you put it, um, every day. I just want to say one other thing. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention this as uh, some friends and I have figured out how to play a card game that we really like <laughs> online. It's called Setback. <laughs> It's a little bit of a tedious process, but it's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, and some I, I have spent some late nights uh, playing cards, and it's been nice to be able to talk um, while we're playing this card. And then uh, friends of mine, you know, we have a little bit of a competitive streak, so <laughs> I think it's just an outlet to be able to do that um, and play the card game. So, <laughs> yeah, that also reminds me that. Um... You know, dissenters, we, you know, we're figuring out, we're in the process of figuring out how to organize in, in, in a pandemic. But one of the things we're doing, like this tonight, we're having a, a game night, a Zoom game night where we're going to, we're creating um, a, uh, I think it's going to be like a movement theme Jeopardy. And on Zoom, you can actually break out into groups and with the raise hand function. So we're going to have a whole like... Um, competitive movement jeopardy session uh, all right channel that since we can't hoop anymore you just got to channel it somewhere you know right uh thank you all so much for being with us and sharing your thoughts and sharing your time um is there anywhere online any links any places where people should go to find your work and you and the ways you want to be found check out pnab.org p hyphen nap.org to check out some of the work that we do with arts and education and our exhibitions and the think tank um Definitely go check out our 
our friends over at proillinois.org, proillinois.org. Yeah. And also there's a bunch of different initiatives listed under freethepeople.org. Freethepeoplecoalition.org. It lists a lot of the mutual aid efforts that we've talked about and more. Thank you all both so much again. And we'll be back on our next episode on the line. More folks reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hey, Dave. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? It isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the app store where you get all the other things. That yeah. You, you going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. Been. <gasps> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> see, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.